Hollywood is perhaps the antithesis to a British prison cell. The red carpets, champagne fueled premieres, world famous actors, lavishness beyond compare. It's the home of the seekers, the wannabes, the movers and the shakers. Now, whatever you've made of Giovanni Di Stefano so far, he was certainly one of those, as he makes abundantly clear to his YouTube audience. I am not for sale, whatever offer, whatever price. I'm a buyer, not a seller. In the last episode, you heard how Giovanni Di Stefano left his humble Italian birthplace, came to England unwillingly, started scheming and ended up a convicted fraudster. So a British prison cell was where he found himself. But Giovanni wanted to know the world, and wanted the world to know him. He left prison in the late 80s as a man with a plan. A plan that would take him to Hollywood and beyond, in some kind of perverse gap year that planted him firmly onto the world stage. From What's the Story Sounds, this is Swindler, Saviour, Mobster, Spy. Episode 3, Major Moves. To tell you about this mad chapter of Giovanni Di Stefano's life, I'm going to have to introduce you to another eccentric Italian chancer. My name is Alan Citron, and from 1982 to 1995, I was a reporter and editor at the Los Angeles Times. No. Alan Citron is not the eccentric Italian chancer. He was a diligent business editor at the LA Times. But he's helping me tell this story. The man we're focused on is... Mr. Peretti. Peretti. Giancarlo Peretti. Giancarlo Peretti. Hollywood loves new money and is always on the outlook for, for investors. The door is always open because it's a very expensive business to run. And back in the late 80s, early 90s, Hollywood as a whole was going through a real transition period. Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, MGM, was one of Hollywood's most recognisable studio names. You know it, the one with the lion roaring at the start of James Bond movies or The Wizard of Oz. Well, MGM were going through a particularly turbulent time back then. By then, MGM was already, you know, a shadow of its former self. Because it was such an iconic brand, I think that people often thought of it as being something bigger than it really was. It seemed like it was going through transitions fairly frequently. And, and when the latest episode started with Peretti, that just felt like you know the latest twist in, in a really long saga. Enter the Oracle from Orvieto, Giancarlo Peretti, who had grand plans to enjoy all the opulence Hollywood had to offer. His reputation was that he was someone who really liked the private jets and the actresses and the lifestyle, you know. He was definitely an enigmatic guy. People did not know much about him. The story went that this guy was a waiter by trade, and here he is incessantly making overpriced bids for a dying giant. But by the grace of God, he got it. For $1.5 billion, he became the owner of MGM. It was just this roller coaster. And when I went back and looked at the clips, I noticed that several people on our staff wrote stories about this, and that was not normal. Usually you would have one or two people and it would be their job to cover a specific thing. And I thought to myself, well, maybe this guy's story was so exhausting that you know we just had to keep subbing in new reporters. <laughs> people just ran out of uh, energy to cover this any longer. 
While on one of his shifts covering the audacious takeover, Alan met Giancarlo Peretti's PR person at the Polo Lounge in the Beverly Hills Hotel. And she said, uh, look, you know, I, I hope that you'll treat Mr. Peretti fairly. And I, I said, well, yeah, of course we will. Uh, and she said, because if you don't, I'm going to stab you with this butter knife. And I thought she was kidding. And I, I laughed and she did not laugh. That gives you kind of a sense of just how off the wall this whole thing felt, because that was not the way, obviously, that people spoke to each other. Giancarlo made quite the splash himself. At his first press conference, he appeared alongside a real live lion. No, honestly, he did. This kind of thing is a gift for a journalist. Like a lot of these things you would say to yourself, well, you, you know, you can't make this up. And I'll, I'll give you an example. Peretti was at some sort of a social event and Clint Eastwood walked in with his agent or manager and Peretti supposedly walked up to the agent or manager and said, great to meet you, Clint, or something like that. And I mean, Clint Eastwood at the time, you know, was probably one of the most famous faces in the world. Much to Alan's regret, he never actually met Giancarlo Peretti in person. Hello. Hello, Ed. So what can I tell you about Mr. Well, Peretti? <laughs> that's a good question. Ed Epstein did. At the time, Peretti was buying up movie studios. And uh, so he was becoming a figure in the movie business. Ed is an investigative journalist who's written about the assassination of JFK, about Edward Snowden, and of course, Giancarlo Peretti. I had been um, thinking about doing a book on Hollywood, which eventually I did. It was called The Big Picture. So I was interested in a man who was buying up Hollywood and he was buying MGM for a billion dollars. A friend of mine, a very good friend of mine, Mario Patero, he arranged a meeting and Peretti had a partner uh, called Florio Furini. Florio Furini was the serious financial guy involved in the takeover. Ed sat with the three Italians for lunch at a fancy New York restaurant. When the appetizers arrived, he said, you know, Hollywood, the secret of Hollywood is it's run by Jews. And he began a tirade against uh, a Jewish uh, power in, <laughs> in uh, Hollywood. Not only am I Jewish, but actually Mario Potato, despite his Italian name, is also Jewish. So Perini uh, began trying to whisper to Peretti, that, you know, that, that people you're talking to are Jewish, you know. I, I wasn't in any way offended, but he didn't seem to understand that. And then he said, oh, he said, well, you know, I, I admire the Jews because they've taken over Hollywood. He was one of the uh, uh, funniest and uh, most bizarre characters, you know, that I ever spent time with. Like, like he stepped out of an Italian comedy. It, it, it's a head scratcher because when you're covering a story like this, you just keep thinking, how did this, how did this happen? How is it even possible that this guy who supposedly came from nothing is making a serious bid for MGM and now he owns MGM? Like he stepped out of an Italian comedy, supposedly came from nowhere. Peretti is sounding a lot like a certain Mr. Di Stefano, don't you think? But why am I telling you this story, I hear you bellow? Well, it turns out Giancarlo Peretti is Giovanni Di... No, 
I'm just pulling your leg. What actually happened is a few years before Peretti takes over MGM, Giovanni has a chance meeting with Peretti in his favorite spot, the polo lounge of the Beverly Hills Hotel, and he becomes involved in a group of Italian merry men who take over Hollywood. Well, MGM at least. And as for Giovanni's role? He's definitely a listed director. This is Michael Di Stefano, Giovanni's son, who's on a mission to learn the truth about his dad. There's even a period of time where I think he's listed down as CEO, and now I think that's because... I think there was about an eight-month period where Giancarlo had to stay out of America, and I think dad was... Dad was left in, in charge if you like. Michael has discovered a lot about his father's Hollywood adventure from the hard drive he was handed at Giovanni's 2013 trial. And he remembered the luxury of the time as a child exploring LA. I remember being able to watch television in a car for the first time, watching, you know, Disney films on a screen in the back of a limousine. Giovanni Di Stefano, the boy from the Italian village of Petrilla Tifonina, had made it. This, according to Michael, is one of Giovanni's proudest moments. If you want to put it this way, they, well, they discovered Brad Pitt. You know, if my dad has any claim to fame, it would be Thelma and Louise. Thelma and Louise is probably the highlight of their time at MGM. Yeah, so next time you're watching Benjamin Button, you have Giovanni Di Stefano to thank. Well, you know, it's funny with both of those guys, you just had the feeling that you, you weren't really going to get to the bottom of it. You know, you could travel to Europe, you, you could interview all the former colleagues, you could talk to law enforcement, whatever, but there was just something deeply, deeply mysterious about them that was intentional. These guys put a whole lot of energy into inventing themselves. And unless you're there, it's hard to know exactly where the, the truth begins and the truth ends and the fiction begins and it's all really muddled which is probably the point and and um i mean you you may not be able to help me with this but i'll put it to you anyway but giovanni de stefano claimed to have discovered brad pitt um for thelma and louise <laughs> i would love to hear brad pitt's uh, side of that because i can't believe uh that that actually happened Well, no, I didn't get through to Brad Pitt. Now that you mention it, I do remember that story. And I don't think anyone took that seriously. Stranger things have happened in Hollywood, so I'm not calling that an outright lie. It may have occurred. What certainly happened is the great Los Angeles dream came crumbling down around these three audacious Italians. It was never quite clear how the financing was coming together, because as I recall, you know, it involved uh, European banks and different combinations of assets and cash and this and that. It turned out the Italian trio had sourced their money from a French bank, Credit Lyonnaise. Ed Epstein investigated the financing behind the deal. I mean, I think those are the only credentials you really need in Hollywood is a line of credit at a major international bank like the problem is, they'd misrepresented assets of the company to the bank, to a rather extraordinary degree. It was a deception that people wanted to believe in rather than debunk. They just didn't want to know that they might be working with a, a I guess, con man. Basically, it was fleecing banks. 
in truth, and to give credit to the Italians, it was quite a good idea. You have a good chance of, <laughs> of, of, of sort of riding the fame, and, and that fame makes you a major player. Maybe you can buy Warner Brothers, and maybe you can buy 20th Century Fox. In other words, you propel yourself by simply the fact that you could acquire something for a billion dollars. You know, suddenly you become a major player, and what do you have to lose? Because when you can't repay the loan, then it's the bank's problem. They lent you the money. Michael was only a kid during this chapter, but fondly recalls the time. In fact, he has regrets that his dad couldn't make it work. If you're going to straight and narrow a family, what better opportunity than than at MGM to be able to, you know, forget the job, forget 1986, forget 1976. Here you go. I can standardise everything now. You know, I give myself massive credibility. And maybe for him, his, his regret is it didn't last longer. Do you think these people were actually capable of ever making a good go at it? No. No. Hollywood is fairly flexible about who it lets in, as long as the person plays by certain rules that, that have existed for a long time. You know, like any industry, Hollywood has its, its, its rules. You don't get to totally make it up no matter who you are. They came in as outsiders. They managed their roles as outsiders and they left as outsiders and they, they never really bridged the gap. Left as outsiders may be an understatement. Florio Fiorini went to jail, Giancarlo Peretti escaped to Italy, and a lot of powerful people were pissed off. Giovanni needed to get away. Where's the best hiding spot on earth, I hear you ask? Well, Giovanni had an interesting answer to that question when he spoke to the BBC. Who the hell's gonna come looking for you in a war zone? Giovanni pops up next in an actual war zone. It's 1992, and he lands in what we now call Serbia. At the time, it was Yugoslavia, in the midst of a bloody, violent war. I mean, the logic is sound. If someone's looking for you, where are you going to hide in a war zone? I mean, it's, it's kind of a stupid thing to say, but the logic is sound. Michael actually sees things slightly differently. You're asking me, was he actually hiding in a war zone? No, I don't think he was. I think he recognised that there's opportunity in those parts of the world. This is an example of what Michael calls embellishments. Not lies, but perhaps a decoration of the truth. Either way, ending up in a war zone, that bit is true. Now though, it's not a war zone. Not at all. It's quite the tourist destination. Our journey continues in Belgrade. I'm meeting Miriana Stanic and her son Gianluca at an alfresco restaurant serving traditional Balkan dishes. I've never, I've never had Serbian food. So, <laughs> so good to try it. Miriana is Giovanni's third wife, and Gianluca is their child, Giovanni's youngest. No. Oh, <laughs> he will die without his pasta. There's loads of money arriving in Belgrade now. Parts of it look more like Dubai than the image of communistical Yugoslavia. But back in the 90s and under strict sanctions, things were very different. There was a completely blocked trading with Serbia. Completely, the culture was... The, there was no culture, no new films, no cartoons, no books. And remember, those years we didn't have Google. 
Right. You couldn't just go on the internet and uh, see the stuff. It was horrible. You'll hear my rudimentary attempt at explaining the context of Yugoslavia in the next episode. But suffice it to say, when a strange Italian man turns up proposing investment into wartime Belgrade, Miriana, like anyone would be, was confused as to why. And a friend of mine calls me and he says to me, look, tonight I have here Italian man, which is desperately looking for a translator and you would fit perfectly. And I said, who is this guy? What is he doing here under the sanction? How he came? Because all foreign people almost left. So them. Was, it, was it weird that this Italian... It was very weird. And we, we all would ask ourselves, is he mad? What is he doing here? I mean, everyone is running away. This man is... Uh, apparently coming here and he wants to invest, make films. It all didn't... Did you, did you hear stories about, about him? No, Not at this point? No. friend. I didn't know nothing okay. about him. He started having an interview and he was almost like a show on... After the news, they would put 10-15 minutes interview. This is a, a businessman which came from Hollywood. He wants to make films. He was freshly like coming from MGM, where he worked for a couple of years. It took some convincing. She told me that when her friend came to her with the offer from Giovanni, she just wanted to stay in and wash her hair. But Miriana didn't do that. Instead, she left her home to meet Giovanni and they fell in love and lived happily ever after. Yeah, well, not quite. I wasn't sure what to think. I just didn't like him at first because he was so arrogant. Really? He thought that he was something so special and he was all the time like typewriting on a cable. Didn't even say a proper hello and didn't even give attention. I hope by now you know that Giovanni Di Stefano gets what he wants and he wanted Miriana. So she became his translator and then his wife. And that is how it all started. And me and Giovanni for many years said, when I would be angry on him, he would say, I think, Miriana, it was better that night if you washed your hair and you never came to see me. <laughs> <laughs> so now we eat. Well, now we eat, now we yes. eat. So tell me, what is this? What, so what? This is Chevap, okay. okay? This is Serbian, Serbian cuisine. Serbian right. cuisine, cool. yes. I'm going to turn this off while we eat. The food was delicious, by the way, and I'd definitely recommend Belgrade as a destination for your next European city break. But it was no holiday for Giovanni. It was perhaps the most perplexing chapter in his most perplexing life. He tells me he meets a gentleman, he meets Radoitza. Back in his London flat, Michael is telling me about how his dad came to arrive in Serbia in the first place a chance meeting at the billionaire Bernie Cornfield's castle in Switzerland. The chance meeting was with a Serbian businessman called Radojca Nicevic, a name you'll hear me mispronounce a few times in this series. So Radojca, from my kind of rudimentary research, I've, I've, I've seen he was called the first Serbian tycoon and a, a controversial businessman. I've later learned, yes. Michael has discovered that his dad was invited to Belgrade where he quickly became partners with Radojca in his property empire. Then, very soon after Giovanni's arrival, Radojca is murdered and Giovanni takes control of the business. Oh, and I should warn you, Giovanni's life gets truly shady from this point onwards. He's assassinated Radojca outside of his office, which became my father's office, walking down 
a driveway and he's just left there dead on the floor. I, and I suppose as many would do, and I think many Serbs did at the time, they wondered how this foreign man just came in and inherited this position. This position was obviously meant, it was destined for a Yugoslav, um, one of their own. And this Italian walks in upon this guy being conveniently assassinated. He walks in and takes over everything. I always wondered with dad, and it's, shit, this is a massive admission for me to make. Again, I have never really spoken about this publicly. I don't know what my old man is or isn't capable of, or when I say capable of, I'm not talking about physical, I'm talking about what he's prepared to, what he can live with morally. Now, Radojca, when he was when he was killed, the real benefactor of that well, was dad. And I would be lying if I didn't, in my head, at some points, think to myself, would dad have been capable of of ordering that? Or ordering, I can make it sound like, like Don Corleone or something. It sounds really stupid to say, but would it have been something he could potentially live with? I know he's not a killer. I know he's a person that he does have... I, there's a level of, of ethics and morality that he does have. And I don't think it stoops as low as, you know, ordering the death of people. But the fact that you're even thinking about that is so foreign to me. It's foreign to me. It's foreign to all of us. When you get to the point where you question is somebody capable of the ultimate sin? No. Giovanni did not have Radoitza knocked off in some kind of ode to the Godfather. At least there's nothing to suggest that's what happened. According to Michael, there's a much more innocent explanation, if an assassination can ever be innocently explained. He reckons it was something to do with his dad and Radoitza's trip to see Pablo Escobar in Colombia. Something to do with cocaine, basically, that got him killed. The amazing thing about Giovanni is that because there's so much to get to, other incredible stories fall away. He really did visit Pablo Escobar, but nothing dramatic or criminal happened that we know of. For what it's worth, Michael says no, his dad was not involved in drug smuggling. He had a moral bar. A moral bar? Hmm. But... He, off the back of that, shoots, you know, straight to the forefront of, of, of Eastern Europe such a short bit of time he gets given honorary citizenship you know he's bestowed citizenship upon him by the president he's just a foreigner fuck's sake he started to become well, a player and one of the major figures in belgrade and not just belgrade it spreads to the entire eastern bloc all of a sudden fuck mgm that's no longer important anymore here we're playing for something far different it's it's the flip side of fame, isn't it? You know, you have the MGM fame, which is the glory. I mean, we've all been to Los Angeles. We've all seen how the Hollywood bubble is the Hollywood bubble. But then he moves into a completely different type of bubble. It's just, well, it's insane. A Yugoslav-shaped bubble full of shade. On the run from Hollywood, Giovanni arrives in wartime Belgrade, becomes an honorary citizen and swaps celebrity for infamy. Really, because he doesn't exactly keep a low profile when he arrives in the war zone. No, Giovanni makes another big move and befriends the most dangerous and powerful people in the country. Giovanni's Yugoslav jaunt continues next time. 
Swindler Saviour Mobster Spy is a What's the Story original production. Our music is supplied by KPM and our lawyers, who are definitely accredited, are Felicity Price and Emily Barber at Reviewed and Cleared. The series is produced and edited by me, Callum McRae, and my executive producers are Daryl Brown and Sophie Ellis. If you've enjoyed this podcast, and we hope you have, please follow and leave a review.